Father, we give you thanks and praise. We know that you continue to watch over all of us. Thank you for bringing us all here safely, and we thank you that you are here present with us. Lord, we commit this evening's teaching to you. Once again, Lord, asking for your Holy Spirit to be with us, to teach us, and to lead us, to open our eyes, Lord, to help us understand the words of our King Jesus. And we commit this time to you, Lord, knowing, Lord, that in the end, we want to give you praise and glory in all things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening's teaching is not an easy one. And if you know me by now, there are many passages where I start with that statement. Uh, this passage is not a favorite for everyone either. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. And so I want to be very careful in the way I present it. And I keep reminding myself, even on the way here, stick to the text. Stay as close as I can to the text. Because we must allow Scripture to speak to us. And as much as we want to interpret it the best we can, I pray that this evening's pulling from Scripture to let Scripture interpret Scripture will be helpful for all of us, that you will process it yourself also. As always, let's remember context. And you know that this teaching is not a standalone teaching. It is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are actually in the final section in this sermon. In the last couple of weeks, we have explored one message, a second message, and this is the third, and next week will be the fourth and the final one. This four-part thing is like the final, final section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes his time to, to conclude his entire preaching. Now, we know that we have already looked at the choice Jesus presents a choice. He says, you have a narrow gate and you have a broad gate. It leads to a narrow way or it leads to a broad way. You need to choose. We've, we've already established that this is not about the, just the point of salvation, but it is also about the process of salvation. The gate is also leading us into the ways of the kingdom and the spirit. Now, what are these ways? It is a way of love, of liberty. It's also a way of suffering, but it is also a way into the kingdom. Now, you need to know this because this context is important as we unpack the teaching for tonight. And Jesus says, few will find this gate that actually leads to life. These are the words of Jesus. I'm not adding anything to it. This is what he is saying, and this is what he has said. But after he presents a choice, he issues a caution. He gives a cautionary note. He says, beware, you better stay on course. You better pay attention because there will be false prophets. And last week we looked at this, we realized not only false prophets, but there are other false ministers that will go by other names, but I believe it falls into the same category of false people trying to veer us or distract us of a way that we might have chosen. And then Jesus says, well, you will know them by their fruit. You can see their character, you can look at their ministry. But then again, we say, well, these two things are good, but they're not really foolproof. What about prophetic fulfillment? Now, that's important. But yet also today, there's very little accountability of prophecy being fulfilled or not. And so we said that alignment with Scripture then is the most important. We've got to look at the Sermon on the Mount and see what does Jesus say and then what do all these false prophets or these teachers say. 
We've also concluded, and we all agree, the problem is sometimes not them. Oftentimes, it's ourselves. Because we love to hear only the good stuff. And we ended with a personal responsibility reminder to say, stop blaming the false prophets. Because we have the Word. We have the Scripture. It is our task and our part to know it well so that we can measure these according and against the right benchmarks. Now, after Jesus talks about choice, He presents a caution. Now, He tells us the consequence. I mean, how clear can a teacher be? <laughs> right? You cannot look at Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, not clearly. You know why you say it like that? You know, I'm not sure what you're talking about. It's very clear. There's a choice you choose. There will be people who try to pull you away from how you have chosen, if you have chosen correctly. And there's a consequence if we are not careful about these things. And we find this consequence in verses 21 to 23 of Matthew chapter 7. And let me read this to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, this is the passage in Matthew, but I want to give you a parallel passage. I want you just to note this down so that on the side, you can study it for yourself. You'll find it in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 31. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Just let me just ask you a question. How many of you underline this one? How many of you would take photo of this and post this on Facebook? I think very few, man. Right? This is not one of those favorite types, you know, where I, you like, like, love, love, you know, on Facebook. But I think these words are very, very important. So let's unpack this a little bit. What would this consequence be? Who would these things refer to? Jesus says, not everyone. Not everyone who calls him, who says to him, Lord, Lord, not everyone. First question, let's ask. Who is this everyone that Jesus is talking about? Is this passage meant even for everyone? Or would you just read verse 21 and you say, oh, not everyone. Okay, so not me, no? So let me just skip these verses very quickly and very conveniently. I think we need to know what the everyone Jesus was referring to before we can determine who is the not everyone. Did you get that? If we look at the immediate context, a couple of verses before, we were talking about false prophets. So very likely, Jesus could be referring to these false prophets or these ministers who might be saying, Lord, Lord, to him. And Jesus will then finally say, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know you. Right? And because it's very safe to presume that these are the ones because these would be false prophets. They would have prophesied in his name. They would have a deliverance ministries, cast out demons, and perhaps have even signs and wonders ministries. So that not everyone here could be referring to this small group or this very specific group of false ministers. And if you look at this interpretation this way, you will say, oh, thank goodness I'm not there. But if we look at a broader context, that means we go a few verses before that. When Jesus, when He was talking about choice, he spoke to disciples. That's a Sermon on the Mount. He was talking to disciples and people of the kingdom. 
Now, would you agree, you and I, we are people of the kingdom? Even more today, many are involved in the prophetic. A lot of people are trained in deliverance and signs and wonders and, and healing ministries today. And so, possibly, Jesus could be also referring to a broader audience of everyone. In other words, guys, not everyone who does all these things and calls me Lord, Lord, I will recognize. If we look at even a broader context on the entire, of the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke to disciples again. And what is the Sermon on the Mount essentially about? The king gives his law. It's about lawfulness. And at the end, Jesus says, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so, wow, this is even a broader audience right now. It includes quite a lot of everyone. If we look at the parallel context in Luke chapter 13, verse 22 to 31, that's exactly the same words that Jesus used when someone came up to him and asked him, and he says, I, I, I do not know you. Now, who is this person and who are these people who might be listening in? The Bible says that Jesus went through the cities and the villages. No mention of false prophets, no mention of impressive ministers, but he's just talking to anyone and everyone who would listen to him. It was a general audience. Jesus says, these guys will say to me, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. That's everyone. Would that be broad enough for all of us to agree and to understand that? And so I believe everyone means everyone. That the caution is for every person who will believe in Jesus Christ, who will consider Jesus as their Lord. This caution and this consequence is directed at both ministers and the masses, if you want to draw a line. Everyone means everyone. And Jesus is giving a caution that not everyone who considers themselves as part of the kingdom will finally enter the kingdom. I know no one's going to say amen to this one. But that's what the verse says. And so these three verses are important for every one of us. Everyone who's seated here listening in, we are included in this cautionary note that points out a consequence. I want to set that tone because I don't want you to think, oh, this does not apply to me. I'm just coming for a nice teaching. This is very specific. It affects all of us, everyone. Let's look at those three verses again. And as I look at the three verses, I thought, hey, it's an interesting way to give you a three-point sermon. Everyone loves a three-point sermon. We see that there's a will we see that there's a way, and then we see that there's a wow factor right in between. Did you notice that? In verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will. And we want to know what this will of the Father is all about. But right at the end, in verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, people who don't keep to the way. That would be a problem, right? If you veer from the way of the kingdom, that's lawlessness. There's a will of the king, i.e. the will of the kingdom, and there's a way of the king, which is the way of the kingdom. 
But right in between, in verse 22, these guys talk about prophesying. These are powerful manifestations, casting out of demons, doing signs and wonders, miracles. And I call this the wow factor. The wow factor. There's the will, there's the wow, and there's the way. Let's look at the wow first. Everyone loves the wow. Say wow. wow. Yeah, thank you. I think the first question we ask is, isn't the wow part of the Father's will? Remember, Jesus says, look, you did not do the Father's will. Then they contended. They say, excuse me, chop, chop, clarify. Okay, what do you mean I didn't do the Father's will? We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did signs and wonders in your name. How can you say it is not part of the Father's will? Let me say to you, there's nothing wrong with prophesying, nor casting out of demons or working of miracles. Because immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope you continue your journey with us, because immediately after that, the king himself goes out and he does exactly the same thing. Chapter 8 and chapter 9. Come, if you want to talk about miracles, signs and wonders and healings, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to practice that because that is part of the kingdom. After that, in chapter 10, he sends his disciples out. He says, now you do exactly the same thing. You see, there's nothing wrong with these things that these guys were contending and clarifying to say, didn't we do all these things? But let me say to you, there is more to doing the Father's will than just the wow manifestations. There's more to it. They even asked, didn't we wow people in your name? Everything is in your name, right? You notice that three times it says. And I want you to see that the Father's will is to be done in the name of the Son. Because the Father and the Son are one. The Father has given all authority to the Son. And so everything that we speak in the name of the Son, we have the right authority. We have the right name. So the guys were asking, hello, you mean I use wrong name? Your name what? It's a correct name. Do we not get the results? We got the right results. But you see, it's not just the results. It's not just the using the name of Jesus. There is something, there is more than just that. It's not just the will of the Father of the King. It's not just the name of the King. You know what's the key? The key is this. The will of the King must be done in the ways of the King. It may involve the wow, but we are not to be distracted by the wows. Let me say that once more for you. The will of the king must be done in the ways of the king. It may involve a wow factor, but we are not to be distracted by the wows. These prophetic power manifestations are not everything. They're not the be-all. They're not the end-all. They're not trophies to be paraded. They're not power tools to be misused. The king has laws, and all must abide by that law, by the Spirit of the law. This is the main thing that Jesus is teaching down here. Don't be distracted by the wows. Because I can tell you, the wows are very wow. It's very impressive, right? That's why they call him wonders. You look at it and it's like, oh, wow, look at all these things. You know? I mean, they're so cool. It must be correct. So how do we process this? How do we understand these things? Let me just give you five points for you to consider. When you are trying to evaluate the wows, the first thing is this. The displays of the gifts of the Spirit must be matched by the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit can happen overnight. You can have the gifts immediately. That's a promise. But the fruit of the Spirit 
has to be grown over time. And when we look at the prophetic manifestations, the casting out demons, the power encounters, these are spiritual manifestations. They are gifts of grace. They are given to us by grace. We don't own any one of these. It's not up to us how good we are. It's all by His grace that we have been given. And so the gifts can be immediate, but the fruit must be grown over time. Charisma without character will be judged by the king. So when you look at someone, they may be moving with the wows, they may be impressing you with all these things, but if the character does not line up, that's questionable. If you are moving in the gifts, but you are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you have to be very careful. Because the will of the king will have to be done by the ways of the king. Second point for you to consider. The gifts and the power manifestations, all these impressive things, they are for the profit of the body, not for the profit of self. This is always given for the profit of all. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 8. However, people naturally would, would be drawn to individuals who display all these spiritual and supernatural manifestations. Am I correct? Let's be honest. When we see someone moving in this anointing, so to speak, we want to go. How do we publicize a talk? Wow, this person very anointed. Leh. This person moves in signs and wonders, you know. This person is a healer, you know, right? So we are always drawn to people who move in this way. In the book of Acts, in chapter 14, we are told that in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas, I mean, they worked these this miracles, these signs and wonders, and the people immediately declared, the gods have come. And they wanted to worship them. And, and they kept telling them, can you, stop? can you stop this? I mean, we are men just like you. Can you stop? The one who is doing this is God. And they just couldn't stop them from sacrificing things to them. This is our problem. We keep going to this person. That's, that's why it's so easy for the person manifesting these things, exercising these gifts, to misuse, to abuse the gifts. We may start out with all good intentions, but I can tell you when people start to draw to you and start to put you on a pedestal and begin to worship you like a celebrity, if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. And then the personal agenda comes in. Personal profit comes in. You're not careful about that? Manipulation of people begin to come in. The wow factor is not to draw people to yourself. The wow factor is to point people to God. In the book of Acts in chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer had this, had this same issue. He wanted to buy the gifts. He wanted to pay for the Holy Spirit because he's like, wow, I mean, if you can do it and if I can buy this Holy Spirit, if I can buy this anointing, then, then I can be as popular, I can be as powerful as you. Then my ministry will also be as impressive as yours. The wow factor is for the profit of the body. It's never for the profit of self. Third point for you to consider is, you have to understand the difference between a kingdom power manifestation and the establishing of a kingdom purpose. Does it satisfy or does it work a kingdom purpose through this kingdom power manifestations? Let me challenge you with these. Some of these miracles, prophetic things, casting of demons, they may, they may demonstrate the power of the kingdom, 
but they do not necessarily address the issues of the kingdom of love, justice, and mercy. Think about this for a while, okay? I mean, we know in our community these days, in a, in a, in a global format, we say, oh, the terrorists are, are, are giving us a problem, right? Let's bomb the terrorists. Let's bomb this dictator guy. He's a bad guy. You bomb this guy to death and you, you just break the entire city. After that, if you do nothing for the people, those power manifestations have come to nothing. Are you following? And so it's the same with these spiritual power gifts. We can cast out demons, we can prophesy, but at the end of the day, if there's no love, if there's no justice, if there's no mercy, then all these things are not just wow, they are wayang. These signs and wonders, you know, it's, it's just to collect points. Many times we start out with good intentions, but we can veer off the way. See, the will of the king must always be done by the ways of the king. The fourth point for you to consider is, are we followers of signs or are we followers of the king? See, the beneficiaries of such manifestations do not necessarily translate into believers, disciples, or subjects of the king. Read the Gospels. You're going to find Jesus healed so many. The Gospel of John records that if I have to record all these, all the books cannot contain. How many people did Jesus heal? I don't know. How many demons did He cast out? I am not sure, but we know it is a lot. Then you've got to ask yourself, how many disciples did he have in the end? Right? The beneficiaries of these manifestations do not necessarily mean a convert or a disciple or someone who would live for the king. They can follow the signs. They will be mesmerized by the wow factor. But when it comes to the will of the king and to walk the ways of the king, they say, thank you. <laughs> um, um, another time. We should be the other way around. We should be following the king and not the signs. But the sad thing today is that if there's a healer in town, the stadium is packed. Again, nothing wrong with that. But my question is, after that, where are the disciples? If there's a prophetic meeting, again I say, the room will be packed. But the question after that is, where are the disciples? We follow the king. We don't follow the signs. The interesting thing that is the Bible tells us, the signs follow those who follow the king. But today we are following the signs instead of the king. But I assure you, if you follow the king and you believe the king, Mark chapter 16, 17 and 18, and these signs will follow those who believe. And if you believe, you must follow. If you follow, you must be a disciple. If you are a disciple, then you will walk the will of the king by the ways of the king. Amen? In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. We are not to follow the signs. We are to follow the king. The fifth point is this. In the last days, Jesus tells us, there will be lying signs and wonders. That people will distract, and people will deceive you from what is true. And so you can be very, very impressed with all these things. And sometimes it's very difficult to discern which is true and which is false. That's why you have to look at not just the wow. You have to look at the will and you have to consider the way. If you miss the will and you miss the way and you're looking only for the wow, you're in dangerous, dangerous 
territory. Five points for you to consider. Once again, let me stress, there's nothing wrong with the prophetic. There's nothing wrong with signs and wonders, with the casting out of demons. But you and I know that there are counterfeit and alternative supernatural sources out there. And although they invoke the name of Jesus and they declare a Christian label to it, it may not always be what it seems. The people of God need to know how to discern. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how with the wow? How do we process the wow? Let's understand that it is not merely messianic manifestations they were looking out for. We are also looking for messianic missions, mandate, manifesto, and maturity. Don't be satisfied and don't just chase after all these manifestations. All these things are okay, but you also must be clear about a messianic mission, a mandate, its manifesto, as well as the messianic maturity. And this is to warn us and to caution us. What's our problem? How do we measure men and women of God today? Tell me. We look for signs and wonders, right? We measure them by, by their impartation ability and their anointing quotient. We, we talk in those languages. But Jesus never looked at these indicators at all. Now, He didn't say that these were wrong or these were bad, but His emphasis and His evaluation were not based on these. Go and read verses 21 to 23 again. You did not do my Father's will. And you who practice the lawlessness, those were His two qualifiers or disqualifiers. You can have all the wow and you can impress everyone, but without the will and the way, it means nothing at all. Read the entire gospel. Jesus wowed everyone, but He taught and He showed the way and finally He did the Father's will by dying on the cross. If you remove the last two points, all the wows will mean nothing. Paul, in the book of Acts, had all the wow factor too. But finally he says, I was obedient to the heavenly vision. That's the will of the Father for me. And he was teaching everyone the way of the kingdom. It wasn't just about miracles, signs and wonders. I hope this point is clear for us to process. Now that we understand that, we can move to a second point and ask ourselves, so what is this way of the kingdom? Because no point telling you about the way and the will if I don't explain to you how we can have a better understanding that we can process this well. What is this way? What is the way of the kingdom? We are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about the law of the king, which is the way of the king. Right at the beginning, Jesus already stated, I did not come to abolish or to destroy the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill it. That's what it is. And one word summarizes the entire law. It's all about love, acting for the good of others, being able to forgive others, putting others in front of us, and considering other interests more important than ourselves. Love fulfills the law. Summarized in two statements, you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. We've gone through this. If you're not sure, go and listen to all the other 30 teachings. And so when Jesus says, go away from me, you who practice lawlessness, he is summarizing and what he's saying is paraphrasing, look guys, you are not walking the way of the king. You can have all your wild things, but you're not walking the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you tell anyone that this law is no more, no more useful and no more needed, man, 
you're in a dangerous place yourself, man. And he gives that caution early in chapter 5. In the last part, in Matthew chapter 24, he says, In the last days, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. We're talking about false prophets again. And because lawlessness, now we're being consistent, right? It's still the same thing. False prophets, lawlessness. Because lawlessness will abound, many will stray from the way. The love of many will grow cold. Now what does it mean that the love of many will grow cold? It doesn't mean suddenly I look at you and say, oh, you know, I don't have this, I don't have this emotional feeling for you anymore. That's, that's not this love that we're talking about. Remember, love is always acting for the good and the welfare of someone else other than yourself. Now, when, when that begins to wane, when that begins to be a problem, you know what the next thing is going to be? The next thing is that you don't love other people, you begin to love yourself more than someone else. And I believe Jesus is talking about our time and our generation in this time, that the love of many will grow cold, the focus on self is going to be very, very heightened. It's going to be very, very strong. And Paul says the same thing. In the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of who? Themselves. They will be lovers of themselves. Every time I take a selfie, I must say a prayer. <laughs> Men will be lovers of themselves, but they will not be lovers of God. And they will have a form of godliness but they will deny its power. Now you think about this. This is what's happening. We're going to love ourselves so much. It's going to be all about us. Our Christian walk is just us. We even phrase it that way. God can't do without us. He just loves us so much that He can't bear to exist without us. We word it that way. Messages are sounding that way now. And then we justify it. We say that the end will justify however we do it, it's fine. As long as we do His things, that will be fine. We are prepared to redefine or discard even the way, the ways of the King, for the sake of the will. Right? So we tell ourselves, oh no, we need the church to be full because God the Father wants this place to be full. And so let's, let's redefine the way now. How do we get people in? We must have A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Doesn't matter what the right way is. Doesn't matter as long as we get the people in. But remember I told you, the will of God must be done by the way of God. God will never compromise His way for His will. Some are even willing to disregard the way for the sake of the wow. Now what do I mean by this? Sometimes we see ministers who are moving in manifestations, very prophetic, you know, and doing all these things. They must be right, what? I say, wait, hang on. Have you heard their theology? But they must be right, what? The demons came out screaming, you know, the sick is, uh, are healed. Wait, wait, hang on. But have you heard their teaching? Ayah, don't, don't split hell. Ah. Is this happening? This is happening all over the place. We disregard the teaching because we see the results. We say it works, so it must be right. Not only that, we use our own way or we try to make the way more attractive, more palatable and much easier so that people can come into the things of the kingdom. The funny thing is Jesus a few verses earlier said, the narrow way will be a difficult way. Why do we keep trying to make it easy? This is what I, I've got to scratch my head, you understand? 
It's not that I want you to suffer, right? The point is that we choose the narrow way and should we suffer, we praise the Lord. We continue to go on. We don't choose things that are difficult, but we must be prepared for what might be difficult. And now today, we are trying to make our own laws to move with the times and the shifting values. And so the Bible is no longer important. We are saying now, okay, fine, let's reinterpret the Bible. Sexuality issues, gender issues, we are now pushing the boundaries. We are redefining the markers. Lawlessness will abound because we are trying to cater to the individual. That's a problem. Today, sin is hardly preached in churches. And we overlook it in the name of love and grace. And by the number of knots I see in the head, and we're all from different churches down here, that gives you a good sampling that in the churches we don't talk about sin. We don't like to talk about sin. But let me tell you what 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So like it or not, if Jesus says lawlessness will abound, let's replace that word. Sin will abound. Of course, someone else will say, oh, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, right? And that is true if you, if you quote it that way. But if you willfully keep sinning, do you think there might be a problem? Now, you wrestle with it. Because I know in some of our hearts, we might be thinking, why, why talk about sin? Have we not already been saved? Are our sins not already forgiven? If so, then why do you keep talking about sin and talking about this emphasis on, on lawlessness? Are we saved or are we not saved? And if we are saved, huh, then, then let's, just, let's just go on to the nicer stuff. Lah. So let me point you to Luke chapter 13. Because this guy asked exactly the same question. Luke chapter 13, Lord, are there few who are saved? After this person asks this question, Jesus answers, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of a house has risen up and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. Does that sound familiar? Same phrase. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Same, right? You who practice lawlessness. This is the parallel passage. Now I want you to notice two things here. There is a narrow gate and there is a door. And these two points are different points. You enter by the gate, you walk the narrow way, it leads you to a door. The thing is that if you don't walk correctly, when you come to that door, the door is shut. Now these are the words of Jesus. I'm sticking to the text. So the first point you must consider... It is not about the initial point of salvation, but the process of salvation. I keep saying this. Have we been saved, my friends? Yes. Are we being saved? Yes, we are. Will we be saved? Jesus answers that question. Am I staying to the text, my friends? You've got to read this, and I want you to test this. The second point is this. 
It's always by grace through faith. How was I saved? By grace. How am I being saved? By grace. And so in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, this is what it reads. Listen. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. So it's always by grace that our lawless deeds, that when we bring this to the Lord, say, Lord, I'm sorry for my lawlessness, forgive me, it is done. He forgives us. But you see, it doesn't stop there. We are now zealous for good works. So if you stop practicing lawlessness, you must begin to practice righteousness. You don't stop one and, and not do the other. You've got to have both end. You read the scriptures, it has to be both. Now that we have been saved and we have been made the righteousness of God, we live righteously, not lawlessly. Let me give you scripture. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7. We read from 1 John just now where he said sin is lawlessness. So verse 7 he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one bluff you which means someone will come to try to give you a wrong teaching. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now, doesn't that sound funny? I thought when I believed in Jesus, I was made righteous. Still must practice righteousness. Huh? So when someone tells you, the moment you believe Jesus, you are righteous. You don't have to do anything anymore and he stops there, you better ask a few more questions. Because John says, the beloved disciple of Jesus, he who practices righteousness, you've been given the righteousness of Jesus, now work out righteousness. If people tell you, you don't need to be righteous, you're already righteous. That's a lie. That's why John says, let no one deceive you. This is the way. This is the way. There's no other way. Jesus is the way. Amen? Amen? If you're wanting to walk that way, you walk the way of Jesus. And if He says that not everyone who calls Him Lord, Lord will get that right answer, I think we should listen to Jesus. What does He really mean? And how do we really posture? Because not everyone who says they are Christians Live like Christians. You can confess Jesus as Savior and Lord and still live lawlessly. You can attend church and serve actively and still live lawlessly. You can presume upon grace and still live lawlessly. You can wow people with all the gifts and still live lawlessly. And so Jesus is being very gracious. He's saying, can I warn you? Can I tell you that this is what it is? I mean, you've been given so much. It's by grace. You, you didn't earn any bit of this. 
Now you have a decision to make. I will help you. I will walk with you. My grace will be sufficient for you. I've given you every power by the Holy Spirit. You know, every time you, you mess up, you come, you repent. It's done. I mean, this is, this is the way I've made that provision for you. But you must choose now. Because not everyone who claims that He is Lord lives as if He is Lord. But the next thing is, so if I live that way, how do I understand the will of the Father? Because it's not just the way. It's not being nice people only in the kingdom. There is a will of the Father that we want to be aware of. In verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is very clear. And you have to do the will according to the way. Now, we may rest on the sacrifice of Jesus to redeem our lawless deeds. We just read that. But can we rest on Jesus' own completion of the Father's will and say that we have nothing else to do? Right? So we rest on Him that He redeems us from our lawless deeds because we can't do that. No one can redeem us except Jesus. But we cannot look at Jesus and say, well, He died and He did the Father's will. That's why I don't need now to do the Father's will. Otherwise, Jesus, one line to say, you did not do the Father's will, is not relevant. So if we look at the sermon context, the only mention in the Sermon on the Mount is this, of the Father's will. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope you are convinced by now that God does His will through those who are willing to do His will. And that means you and I knowing and fulfilling what He has tasked us to do and given for us to do. Would that be an amen? And so that's the only reference we have about the Father's will in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the book of Matthew, there's only one other mention of the Father's will. And Jesus was standing with, uh, talking with the multitudes and His mother, the brothers, they were standing outside waiting to speak with Him. And then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Wow, in our Singapore context, huh, you will say, So unfilial. Huh? So bad one are eh, you. Huh? Can you imagine if my parents come in huh, and then you tell me, Hey, your dad is there, your mom is there. And I say, Who? Where? <laughs> I, would, I would be a terrible son, right? Not in, in your eyes. But then Jesus then says in verse 49 of Matthew 12, He stretched out His hand towards His disciples. And He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus saying here? It's not that He doesn't love the mother. He doesn't love His brothers. That's not the point. I'm sure he recognized that biological tie and the biological family. But something here Jesus is saying, that the spiritual priority in a family ranks above what is biological. That is more important than what is biological. That's why he says, if, if you don't hate father and mother and love me more, you cannot be my disciples. And so if you're not willing to align with the will of the father, something is questionable there. Looking at this, can we then paraphrase for us to read? 
Not everyone who claims to be in the family of God is a true brother or sister, but he or she who does the will of our Father in heaven. Now, isn't that scary? And so you and I can be in church, right? Oh, hi, brother. Hi, sister. Yo, bro. Hi, sis. And praise God for that because we've been adopted into the family of God. Amen? Now, that's a privilege. That's by His grace. That's positionally what we can declare. Now, Jesus determines now the one who does the Father's will. Now, that's the real one. That's the raw deal. I'm sticking with Scripture, guys. I don't know how else to understand this. This is the raw deal. Jesus points to the disciples. Now, these, these guys, they are my brothers and my sisters and my, and my mothers. Only disciples who do the will of the Father and the King show themselves to be true members of the household of God. These are serious words. I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm weighing these very carefully, okay? I almost sound apologetic that I have to be declaring this, but I want you to check this. You read the Bible for yourself and you, you tell me, whether Jesus means this or not. Now, if the will of the Father is important, then I think it's important for us to know how do we know then the will of the Father, the will of God. Would you like to know that? Yeah, that will take us another hour. <laughs> two things are key as I look through scriptures. There may be more, but if you start with these two things, you'll be in a very good place. The first is your mind must be renewed. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to know the will of God? You want to test it out? You want to experience what it really is? This thing up here, the mind, has to change, must be renewed. If you keep thinking the ways of the world, you will never walk the ways of the kingdom. You will never discover the will of the Father. Would that be okay for all? Right? It's very basic. I know it's a very simple statement. It's anything but straightforward. Because the kingdom of God is what? Upside down. You've got to walk upside down. That's why the mind must be renewed. And you can go through teaching after teaching, conference after conference. If the mind is not renewed, all you have is just intellectual things and very nice things you post on Facebook and nothing is going to happen. Nothing. And one day you're going to say, oh, we listened to your teaching, you know. We sat, you know, and we ate in your presence, you know. Your presence is like heaven to me, you know. I felt goosebumps, you know. It means nothing. The mind must be renewed, guys. And we don't change it ourselves. God does it for us, but you've got to yield. The second thing is you've got to walk in wisdom. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. Verse 17, the last verse says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul says the days are evil. Don't walk as fools. Walk as people who are wise. Understand what the will of the Lord is. You need wisdom so that you can understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, with these two things, I want you, if you're taking notes on renewing the mind, I want you to write this word, by the mercies of God. Verse 1, I beseech you by the mercies of God. You've got to go back to the mercy of God and the grace of God. If you don't understand that, you will not want to present yourself, you will not want to renew your mind. 
The second thing you write against walk in wisdom is you write the word fear of the Lord. Because if you want to walk in wisdom, where do you get wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Amen? What's our problem today? We may have one and not the other. We may have the other one and not the first one. You need both this mercy and grace as well as the fear of the Lord. Amen? You ask yourself, if you fear the Lord, how would you live your life today? It will change. The truth is, we don't fear Him in the correct way, okay? In the correct way, because He loves us. And by the way, love and fear go together. You want the will of the Lord. These are the two things you've got to understand. And if you posture and you say, Lord, I'm willing to yield. Our Father is willing to give you the things of the kingdom. It is His good pleasure, but it's the posture of our hearts. Without these, you will never understand a general will of what God wants for us through His will. You can take a photo of this, but for the sake of those who are listening in, let me read it quickly to you, because this will be a teaching in itself. God's will is for all men to be saved. Amen? That's His desire. That's His, his will. You say, oh, but if that's God's will, that means it will be done? No, because you can actually reject the will of God over your own life. You have free will. But you see, after you're saved through Jesus, it is only the starting point. Welcome to the Sermon on the Mount. The second point is the kingdom life. You've got to choose the spirit gate or the narrow gate and you live the life of the kingdom. That's His will for you. And so go back and listen to all 30 teachings. There you go. You know the will of God now. The third thing is, he says, this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification, your holiness, Paul says. He mentions this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. And what was he referring to? Abstain from sexual immorality. Do you know how many people in the church are still viewing pornography? Do you know how many problems we have still with sexual problems and immorality problems in the church? That's not sanctification. Don't pray to know God's will because He already told you if you're not posturing for this, then you are practicing lawlessness. I can't say it any plainer. I'm sorry if it offends you. God's will is that we please Him and we not please men. And we do the things that always would bring Him glory. God's will is that if we suffer, we will do it joyfully and that we will endure through the difficult times. God's will for us, and I quote from Colossians 4.17, is that we would know and we would fulfill our part of that bigger will, our kingdom assignments. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16-18, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And finally, everlasting kingdom and everlasting life. That's His will for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says, He who does the will of God abides forever. He who what? Does the will of God abides forever. Would that be everlasting life? Amen? Right? Now, this is the same guy, by the way, who wrote John 3, 16, you know. That if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish but have 
everlasting life. He gives you the potential. That's the promise that you will have. But these are the things. Then he says, you who do the will of God, not the lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the, forget about those things. Those things are passing away. But the one who does this will have all these things. This is a quick overview of what the will of God is, you see. And if you focus on this as a start, I think it's a very, very good starting point for us. Stop looking for the big things first, all right? Align with this and you see whether the big things will come. What's our biggest challenge, guys? Our biggest challenge is this. It is God's will versus a self-will. And a self-will really is a self-rule. And that's why you have to ask this question at the end of the day, who is king? Who is king? Because if you consider yourself as subjects of the kingdom, then you must know you have been redeemed, bought with a price, delivered. You're no longer your own. You are owned by a new master and a new king. His name is Jesus. Is he really king? Because if he's king, you walk his way and you will fulfill the will of the king. And along the way, the wows can come. Let's close. I've taken too much time already. I never knew you, that phrase. Some argue that since Jesus said, I never knew you, he was not referring to believers because believers he would know. I know my sheep. So he was referring to unbelievers. Cannot be for us. Can you see how easy it is for us to keep saying, just no, no, it cannot be us. Well, let me just give you a bit of slack. That, That is possible. But can I say that he was speaking this to disciples? You see, you've got to keep coming back to Scripture consistency. Now, let me read to you 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Paul assures Timothy, he says, The Lord knows those who are His. But immediately after that, he says, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So the Lord knows who are His. But if He knows you as someone who has been saved, the next line is this. If you name the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. Depart, don't practice lawlessness, but do the will of the Father. Same, consistent, exactly. You follow? And so, I never knew you this statement. It's not about, it's not about recognition. I believe it's about rejection. And the king has that prerogative. So the question is, Jesus knows each and every one of us. But do we know Him? Now, I'm not just talking about knowing or safe, safe, be Christian, no. Remember, Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, I pray that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Yeah, I thought we know Him already. No, we've got to know Him even more experientially. What were the biggest problems in 2 Corinthians chapter 10? Paul says, pull down every stronghold. We've got weapons, pull down, cast down high argument. Anything raised, what? Against the knowledge of Him. Okay? Not against your career, not against your uh, uh, promotion, not against your money. Eh? Today we always pray that, right? Lord, I tear down stronghold. I pull down all these things so that I can get this job. No. That's out of context, right? It is pulled down all these things so that suddenly you see, ah, this is Jesus. I need to know Him. Now, if you know your King, then you'll begin to love your King. That's why Paul later on says, I pray you will know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. You cannot learn that one. You've got to know this King and you realize how much He loves you. This is the King. 
You know the king, you love the king, and after you know and you love him, what comes after that? You obey the king. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. It's always the same thing, but we're always trying to find some new revelation. I think we should move on old revelation before looking for new ones. You begin to walk the ways of the king, you begin to do the will of the king. That's called obedience. Lawlessness is simply disobedience. That's all. And Jesus next week will conclude, whoever hears this saying of mine and does them. See that? So don't miss next week. We are talking obedience, you see? It's got to tie in. Jesus is He's a master teacher. How can he not be consistent? And so friends, not everyone, this is the title. These three verses, it's more than just the wow. I love to move in the wow. I pray that God will move wonderfully amongst all of us. Praise the Lord. But it's more than just the wow. It is the will and the way of the King. The choice has been presented. The caution has been clearly presented. The consequence has been stated for us. We cannot say we don't know. We cannot blame pastors. We cannot blame prophets. We have the scriptures. We need to study it and we have a personal responsibility. It has been said that there will be many surprises in heaven in that day. There will be many surprises in that kingdom. I don't presume anything. I stand on the scriptures and I know I have assurance of salvation. I know His grace is sufficient for me and I know He will help me. Amen? But I don't presume anything and that's why I constantly check my alignment as I move on my assignment. But I will always rest in His grace but I will never presume upon His grace that I might receive it in vain. And finally, you and I, I pray we won't hear these words that we have just read tonight. How will I know at the end? How will you know? I don't know. Jesus has the final say. Let's pray. Lord, these are difficult words, Lord. And if we can ignore these, we would gladly gloss over them. It would be much easier just to think that these would apply to someone else. But if the interpretation is correct, then Lord, will you help us search our hearts? And Lord, to be, to be walking your way doesn't mean to, to be totally perfect and squeaky clean because we know we cannot be like that today. We all struggle. But Lord, you desire for us to posture and it is as we do our part that we know that your grace will always be there for us. Lord, forgive us if we have gotten it upside down. Lord, forgive us if we have ignored this and we have pushed this one side. But I pray, Lord... The words that are so clear, there's no condemnation in Christ. There's never a condemnation from you. But Lord, because you say whom you love, you will warn, you will chastise, you will rebuke because you love us. And it's always a word of conviction, of grace. We cannot say you didn't tell us. And so I pray if there's any spirit of condemnation here, I break it off every person now in Jesus' name. But I pray Holy Spirit as you convict us, May we respond rightly to your words, to your love, and to your grace. And so we thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.